You'll want to turn in your print Bible or your device to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I prefer a print Bible, but I understand. I use my device in church sometimes. I understand it. I think it would help you see some connections in the text if you're able to flip, but uh, you can get there just the same on a device. So either way, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now today we're going to pick up reading in verse number 9, even though we are going to really pick up preaching at verse number 12. Um, so let's do that together now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Today talking about um, sexual intimacy versus sexual immorality. Pick up in verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for as it is written the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the spirit becomes one spirit with him flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. May God bless the reading of His Word and minister grace unto His hearers. This promises to be one of the more difficult texts in the Bible by which to preach. For we are asking what the text asks this morning, and that is for gut-level honesty about where you are in the secret compartments of your life, about where you are in the hidden things, about where you are with regard to your sexual expression. Now, from the onset here, before I get into my main points, I want to frame it 
with the way the text frames it, verses 9 through 11, it says there, do not be deceived. That, in fact, is an imperative. There's only three of them in the text, and they'll form our applications at the end of the sermon with fleeing and glorifying. And my main points will follow along four other indicative verbs within the text, or at least implied. I'll borrow them from Paul Tripp, but we'll get to that in a moment. Let me just frame it this way. Do you not know, do not be deceived, do you not know, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the inclusion there is the kingdom of God. Not inheriting the kingdom of God if this is an unrepentant lifestyle for you. And it drills down deep on the fact that there are those that are inside the kingdom and those that are outside the kingdom of God. This smacks against any sense of universalism in salvation, that everybody will wind up in heaven. In fact, there are those in the kingdom and out of the kingdom. And Revelation makes this abundantly clear, as does this passage, that there are some in and some out. So I wrote it out this way, just to try to help us along with the sting of this, and understand that this is a subject that is in bounds for the Christian life, it's inbounds for a, for a sermon subject matter because it's clearly in the text. That is sexual intimacy versus sexual immorality. And not only is it clearly inbounds to talk about these things, but it's incumbent upon us to talk about these things with truth and with grace. Not just with a hard-edged truth and not just about grace as in a presumptuous sense as if we automatically know that we've received the grace because truly grace follows repentance. We repent of our sins and the grace that has regenerated us is then now expressed in our belief in Christ. So repentance is very much a part of the equation. So here's how I wrote about verses 9 and 10. It's, it's not that you're hopelessly damaged goods. It's not that everybody inside the church has committed these and is now free. But some inside the church have been spared these nouns in this vice list of sins. And some outside have never done these things publicly, but are still not born again. You can be an upstanding citizen and not inherit the kingdom of heaven, but no one is good, but one in salvation comes through the one Jesus. And some outside have done these things and cling to these nouns as descriptors of their lives, which means they are not yet inside the church. If they die in this unrepentant state, denying Jesus for salvation, then they will spend eternity apart from God and in hell. It is not loving to subdue that truth from them. Right wrath will be owed because they turned their nose and furrowed their eyebrow at Jesus' way of salvation. So all of this matters very much more than what we might originally think. But drilling down on this inside-outside conversation, imagine this conversation with those inside in heaven, those that have received the free grace of Jesus Christ for eternal life, our Lord. I'm just going to use my name as not to, as not to incriminate any of you. Hi, I'm Matt Watson, and I used to view pornography on my phone. That's porneia is the Greek word for sexual immorality. So if you read it in Greek, it says porn. That's what it says. That's the word. That's how you get it. So that's what we're talking about. Hi, I'm Matt Watson. I used to view pornography even on my phone, but Jesus delivered me from that. I'm, I'm inheriting heaven. Or, hi, I'm Matt Watson. Um, I guess I could use any other name in our church directory here, but I'm Matt Watson, and I used to commit adultery on my wife. Again, I'm not saying I did these things. I'm, I'm using myself as an example so you could do this. Hi, I'm, I'm Matt Watson. I'm so-and-so. I used to be the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, or I used to be the aggressive partner in a homosexual relationship, but Jesus delivered me from that. I'm not identified by that anymore. All I'm doing is taking the nouns out of verses 9 and 10, and I'm just employing them here. I'm not making anything up. You study the verse there. That's what it says. 
Hey, Matt Watson, I used to take what wasn't mine. I used to worship sex and food and pleasures of all kinds, but now my greatest pleasure is Jesus Christ, my Lord. Hey, I used to take pills or drugs for highs and lows or drink to numb the painful reality of my sin, but now I face my greatest fears in Jesus Christ, and he's my Lord. Hi, I'm Matt Watson. I'm in heaven with you. I used to get people fired up, gossiping about them and reviling them, but I've been delivered by Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He gets the glory. Hi, I'm Matt Watson. I used to take what I could in greedy work dealings. I used to live for myself alone. I used to fake like I cared, but really all I cared about was myself. I used to swindle my way to gain, but I was self-deceived, and I've been delivered by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I'm saved by Jesus' shed blood. He bought me. I'm a right doer, not a wrong doer today in heaven because Jesus sanctified me and glorified me with his glorified body. I'm a Christian. I'm not a gay Christian. I'm not an adulterous Christian. I'm not a cheating Christian. I'm not a swindling Christian. I don't attach any adjectives to the word Christian. I'm a Christian. The only adjectives I would attach to it are those that reflect righteousness and holiness according to God's word. I'm a holy Christian. I've been made holy by Jesus. Those things I used to be. That's what I was. It's a word, but I identify with Christ, and that makes all the difference. Look at verse 11. It says, and such were some of you. Friends, I would submit to you that if we're a church that doesn't have anybody on the membership role that used to or currently struggles with homosexual tendencies, then I would submit to you, knowing what I know about this cultural moment, we might not be reaching out like we ought to be. We ought to have some words on this role. If we don't have the kind of climate where we can talk about our sexual pasts and see the grace and forgiveness of Jesus in it, I'm talking about talking about it in a mature manner here. I'm not talking about just, I'm talking about maturity. But with the counsel of the elders, with sincerity of heart, with sobriety of mind, if we don't have a climate where we can talk about these things, how are we ever going to be able to bring the Word of God to bear on the situation so that we might be delivered from them? One of my hopes as a result of this month is that we would become more likely to talk about those sexual sins that plague us, that we might be delivered from them. Because here's what I can tell you, folks. Out there, all they do is talk about sexual immorality, sexual intimacy. They got their slogans. Matter of fact, you know them because you're immersed in the world out there. And for too long, the church has kind of taken a, a sort of legal, judicious stance against any kind of sexual immorality, but we haven't lifted a finger to counsel the word in coming out of those sins. We haven't lifted a finger to normalize the fact, as, sub, as such were some of you, that you used to be that. And therefore, we don't have... We don't have good witnesses, testimonies, so that we can follow me as I follow Christ out of whatever sexual misgiving it is. Now, last week, I talked about grievances, and I talked about the greed and injustice and not taking each other to court frivolously and civil matters and all that. But this week, I take the first half of this vice list because I think that's what verses 12 to 20 do. And we're going to talk about sexual immorality. It's why we, we have children's ministry today. It's why we're taking advantage of that. What I think, application-wise from the onset, is that we really need, 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 need to learn to be able to put sexual talk on the table maturely in our congregation. I believe that. 
And I'll, I'll take it one step further. This text that we've read and that we're going to reread and try to apply, it talks about being members in the body of Christ. It talks about being members, like limbs and hands, arms in the body of Christ. And I'm going to take this is the step further I'm going to take it. I am convicted from having studied this text quite a lot for today. I'm convicted that the best and proper context is the local church gathered. And furthermore, I'm convicted that this is a, a statement in affirmation of, of membership so that you're a part of a dialogue amongst members where it's a trusting, a safe place to interact, as one of my brother pastors says, so that you can trust it's safe. Um, and furthermore, I'm convinced that you cannot get this kind of specific preaching and dialogue and knowing and being known on TV preaching or, or internet preaching, I'm convinced that it requires the flesh and blood face-to-face -face relationships in order to actually be what this text is calling us to be. And so I believe this is a statement, an apologetic for the local church gathered out. And we could go to Ephesians for that and Romans for that and later in Corinthians for that, but I think even this text is an apologetic for the local church gathered out. It takes so much time just to get to the point to where we might be able to say, I used to be that. And I know some of you have been a little bit more prone to talk about this because I've been doing biblical counseling here for over a decade. So I know some of you are prone to talk about these things in and out here. But I want to facilitate those conversations. It's not my story to tell. It's your story. But it's kind of our story. And I'm not talking about getting up here and doing that thing, you know, like the jock. I hate the jock testimonies with the youth groups. I hate them. Where the guy that's, you know, the, the ex-athlete gets up in front of, he's been saved for two years, and he knows how to put together a string of sentences, and he gets up in front of a bunch of kids, and he spends 40 minutes telling them about how bad he used to be, and five minutes saying, Jesus is my Lord. And all of a sudden, they, they're left with the unintended consequence that, well, I guess since he spent 40 minutes talking about his sexual past, I guess I can have a sexual past too in about five or 10 years from now, I'll just recover from it and Jesus will fix me. And how much of a line of baloney is that? I mean, if that is his story, how many more stories are the slippery slope of sexual immorality consume them and they never uttered words of a gospel testimony in front of a youth group? I heard several of those growing up. I despise them. I never want to be that person. That's one of the reasons I don't get up here and just bare my soul about everything I ever have or haven't done. It's immature. I'm not talking about public testimonies. I'm giving you a call for private, mature conversations with the same gender, unless you're same gender attracted, and then we may need to bring a group in in order to do that, in order to talk about the sexual sins that plague you and to overcome them in Christ. He's given us the resources to overcome. If this conversation can't be had in the church... We're really in trouble because it's happening all over out there. I won't even ask you. I'll just tell you. I grew up going to church. Mother played the piano in the church. And I can never remember hearing a sermon like this. Never. Now, I know I was a child. Maybe they talked about those things when I was out of the room like we're doing. But even when I was an upper teenager, I can never remember being counseled the word in this area. Let, let that not be said of us. Let that not be said of us. Okay, now verse 12, proper. Porneia, or sec the word translated sexual immorality, is used throughout this text. Porneia, pornuo, porne, pornas, all the different derivatives of the word um, that we get as sexual immorality, or fornication, which is a fair translation you might, you might have there. All these things are um, 
are articulated in this text. So beginning in verse 12, what we have is a series of slogans, four, probably five slogans, that were governing the philosophies or the philosophical underpinnings of the Corinthian Christian church with regard to sexual intimacy. They had some slogans that were not rooted in the Word of God. They had some, you know, so, so like we might have some slogans like, well, if it feels good, do it. Or, you know, I feel like I identify as this and so I'm this and you can't tell me I'm that. Or, you know, how, you know I don't believe in creation. So there's some kind of Darwinian underpinnings there for being kind of amorphous and being some kind of a, um, a creation of our own existence versus having been intentionally created. And so this philosophically not different that they had here, these slogans that they were clinging to, that they were importing into the church, and they were taking a little bit of what the Bible had said, a little bit about what, what the apostles and what Paul had said to them, and they're putting a, a little bit of, of, of Greek culture, and they're kind of coming together with a way of looking at their bodies and a way of looking at their actions that are patently deplorable to God but they haven't quite shifted through those gears. Now, I want to say something else. before. I'm trying to throw lots of grace in here with this truth. I want to say something about this. All the way through Corinthians, we have the apostle writing to the church as if they are believers. He calls them brothers, right? He calls them the church. He says, and such were some of you. He is still believing, even though this is obviously a problem in the Corinthian church. I don't think he's writing about these things because it's not a problem. I think he's convinced, like I'm convinced, that in the cultural moment of the first century at Corinth in Greece is similar to the cultural moment here. You had, you had rampant homosexuality all the way to the emperorship. You had, you had rampant practicing of sexual immorality. Prostitution is what's listed here, but the range of meaning of the word is much broader than that. You had what we might call, the, I believe we have rampant, uh, probably pornography through screens more than anything else that needs to be repented of and turned away from but all of the sexual sins that come with that. I'll try to bring definition to them in a moment, but I just wanted to say there that, that I, think, I think we have our slogans too, and God is gracious to us, and he, he wants us to be able to overcome these things in Christ, and these are not unforgivable sins, but they are sins that must be forgiven. Okay. The definition of sexual sin with porneia here that comes to us in this text in verse 13, sexual immorality and further uh, includes, it includes, I mean, just to track the semantic range of media, includes pornography, fornication. It includes orgies, swingers. It includes extramarital partners, selling sex, buying sex, homosex, gender fluidity, any denials of the creation order. And I would not include in that the one in 10,000 that have been born intersex. That is a separate physiological issue. It is not a decision of the will to be uh, living in a state of gender uh, fluidity. And so that's, that's a different conversation for, for biblical counseling. It would include here party sex if you were to put it all together and kind of take the range of meaning there. So none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So he doesn't want us to be deceived. And I think there are four inescapable worship principles that come out from verses 12 to 20. And I'll try to move through them quickly because of the lengthy introduction, but four of them, if you want to write them down, it's mastery, eternity, unity, and ownership. Mastery, eternity, unity, and ownership. So verses 12 and 13, mastery. Verses 12 and 13, mastery. Verse 14, the principle of eternity. Worship principles to help us understand sexual intimacy. Mastery, eternity, then unity, verses 15 through 18. And then ownership, verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20. 
Actually, it might pick up 18, 19, and 20 there as well because that verse is split in half. So the first one is the worship principle of mastery. I'm borrowing heavily from a man named Paul David Tripp. And I want to recommend throughout this month a book that I'm reading by him. It's titled Sex and Money. Um, and so very relevant to our theme. And he's a pastor and a biblical counselor. And he writes very maturely, very biblically, and very helpfully about this. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to actually read an excerpt from this in a moment. And so this is, this, I'll, I'll get to this again. Paul David Tripp, Sex and Money. I'm going to ask you this month, give me this month to talk about this. Don't judge the exposition of 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 on today only. Uh, if you're not able to be here every Sunday, follow the online sermons, follow the podcast sermon, because this is a, cons- it's a sequential argument the text makes. It's going to take all four weeks in order to get through this material. Number one for today, an inescapable worship principle. The first one is mastery. Look at verses 12 and 13. These are slogans gone wrong at Corinth. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, what's going on in these first two verses here? Our first point is the worship principle as it regards to sex of mastery. What will I be mastered by? They were saying, and probably spinning off of Paul's freedom quotes in the gospel, all things are lawful for me. And what's Paul saying? Not, not everything's helpful. Not everything's beneficial. All things are lawful for me. He says, but you shouldn't be mastered or dominated by anything. That word for dominate could be translated mastered. So this principle of mastery, I won't be mastered by anything. And it says here, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So they're, they're, one of their sayings is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and they're equivocating. Since God's going to destroy the stomach and he's going to destroy the, the sexual organs of the human body, since they're both going to be oxidation is going to affect both of them after you die, then what does it matter what you do with it? This is the kind of equivocation they're making. And uh, the Apostle Paul says the, against these slogans, he says, the body, I'm looking at verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, for porneia. It's not meant for porn. That's the Greek word, porneia, that's translated sexual immorality. It's not meant for that, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Differently, you can't have both. Like you, you, you can't be meant for sexual immorality and meant for union with Christ. You can't have both. So our, our, first, our first thought here is mastery. Um, sex is an appetite like food is an appetite. So that's true. But the equivocation that eating it, what we want food-wise is therefore means we should be able to enjoy the appetite of sex any way we want. That equivocation was sinful in the thinking of the Corinthian believers. Notice something here about this first principle of mastery, and really all of them. Notice that these people are hearing from Paul correction in their thinking, not just correction in their actions. He's going for their very way of thinking, their philosophical underpinnings, how they think about the universe. I mentioned Darwinianism earlier, a 19th century concoction, but you could go back to Greco-Roman thought And you can think of the philosophies of Seneca, particularly the philosophy of Plato and his dualism that affected the way that these Greeks viewed their body. In short, they understood their body as being like a prison. And 
late enlightenment thought picked back up on this with the likes of Descartes. The body's like a prison. And so their, prison, their thinking, their philosophies about the body is that it didn't matter what you did with it because the heart and the soul, the inner part was all that mattered. It needed to be liberated from this body anyway. And this whole text is saying, no, 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 no. Your body, you don't have a body. You are a body. Your body is the personality of who you are. You, you can't mistreat this thing and at the same time have a good grasp on the gospel. For reason number one, the inescapable worship principle of mastery. All things are lawful for me. They're not all helpful. All things are lawful, but I won't be mastered or dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. And God will destroy one or the other. But the body's not meant for sexual immorality. Instead, for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he's saying this, this mastery principle... You shouldn't be mastered by anything because Jesus is your master. Number two, inescapable principle for worship as it applies to sexual intimacy instead of sexual immorality is eternity. He says this body thing really matters. What you do with it really matters because what you do with it is, a, is, 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 a, is not just a reflection. It is who you are, and it's how you express your worship. And so verse 14 says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So, so to think of the body as a very negotiable and unimportant thing because it will face decay is to ignore the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus' body was resurrected. All the, resur- the post resurrection stories in the New Testament, Jesus is embodied, and you will be too. There's a lot of discussing and musing about what happens between Death and the glorified body? Are you? Most folks discuss the intermediate state theologically as you get a provisional body that's ultimately glorified whenever Jesus judges the quick and the dead and the dead in Christ shall rise, right? So there's a lot of theology to talk about there. But in brief, for our purposes today, just don't think of yourself as a disembodied soul. A lot of sort of Nirvana-ish pop rock kind of stuff that's come down the pike in the last 20 or 30 years has been platonically dualism in its philosophical underpinnings. It's separated the body from the soul, and by dividing it, it's conquered the body in favor of the soul. And application becomes, I do what I want with my body because it's not really important. My inner part's what's important. We, we, un, un, we don't mean to, but we actually do this whenever we say we want to save souls. Now, the Hebrews could do that in Proverbs because they understood that the soul and the body was a unit, that it was one, that, that, we're, not, that we're not to be separated that way. Matter of fact, that kind of a thought of separation is a result of sin. It's not the result of a created order. Adam was made very much bodily. But at the same time, this idea of separating it gives us the thought, and it, it, in germ, it, it kind of comes later, that we could do what we want with our body because our soul is what's really important. And the Hebrews could talk about saving souls because, in fact, they understood that the body and soul was united. But with, with we Greeks, we can't talk about just saving souls because we don't think we're saving bodies. Verse 14 says that there is an inescapable worship reality with the body and what we do with it because it's connected with eternity. Look at verse 14 one last time here before we move on to point three. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Just as much as Jesus' temporal body is related, and the care thereof is related to his eternal body, so is your temporal body related to. There's all kinds of applications with that. 
But the main one here is, is that in light of your eternal glorified body, what you do now with your body really matters. It really matters. So the principle of mastery and of eternity, the third one is of unity. Look at verses 15, 16, and let's actually just do 17 here. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. A rare mood of a verb there to get that. It shall never, never shall it be, would be a way to say, uh-uh. It's just some sort of thing. I cannot believe you'd take, think of taking member of Christ and uniting it with an unbeliever. I can't believe you would even think of that. He's trying to quicken their conscience. He's, he's taking their slogans and he's turning them on their head. He's giving more information. He's trying to speak not just to, not just to their emotions. He's trying to speak to their minds. He's trying to say to them, no. Verse 16, or do you not know? That he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? In a very real sense, they do. I mean, there's a, there's a physical union there. There's some mental and emotional things going on there. And we know this. I mean, because no, nobody ever has a kind of a, a hookup type experience and comes away thinking the same way about that person. Come on. I mean, we even know that. Even just the world even knows that, whether they'll admit it or not. The two will become one flesh. It says here, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, what is he quoting there? He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Our service leader read it to start the service. And that is the first sanctioned marriage. God overseeing the marriage between whom? Between Adam and Eve. And it says there in Genesis 2, 24, as is also quoted by Jesus in, in, in Matthew 19, of Jesus is quoted uh, in the letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, this very phrase, the two will become one flesh. One flesh, one body, one union. So there's a physical component to that. There's an, there's an inner part component. This is meant, this kind of unity, this inescapable principle of using the body for worship, this unity, just as well as we've talked about mastery and eternity, this principle of unity either rightly reflects the relationship of Christ's union with his church, or it wrongly reflects it. A right reflection of it is whenever you reserve sexual intimacy for the marriage covenant union. Just like the very first wedding ceremony there in the Garden of Eden with God presiding, Adam, I give you Eve to be your wife. The two become one flesh and then Jesus speaks later, right? What God hath joined together, let man not put us under. Don't rip this apart. This idea of joining, this Greek word could be understood as glued together. Glued together. That in, in the union that comes in marriage and, and in, in the sexual intimacy that is to follow, glued together. Take something, we used to do this with youth ministry, upper end back in the day. Take two pieces of paper and glue them together and then try to pull them apart and see if you've still got nice, two clean pieces of paper because you, you have little pieces on both sides and it rips and everything else. Glued together. Meant to be cementing for the marriage for the two that are married. And then therefore meant, that act is meant in its created design. Notice God created intimacy. God created sex. We didn't create it. God did. Look at Genesis 2. And the two come together in a unity and reflect, not, not that Jesus is my boyfriend. All metaphors break down. 
but they reflect a greater intimacy of Christ as the groom for the church that is the bride. Go read Ephesians 5 and Revelation that way. Christ the groom, the church the bride. Unity. So what's wrong with sexual immorality? It presents a wrong view of the gospel. It presents Jesus as unfaithful to his bride. Jesus is faithful to his bride. Marriage is supposed to paint a picture of unity between Christ and his church. So claiming Christians can't participate in sexual immorality because they are uniting themselves with something that is not commensurate with the kingdom of heaven. They're painting a bad picture. And this is saying here that the two become one flesh. He who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So never unite a member of Christ. Never should a church member unite with a prostitute. But furthermore, never should a church member break marriage vows. Never should a church member have a, a digital addiction. Never should a church member participate unrepentantly in a, a gay lifestyle. Never should a Christian, any of these nouns that are used in verses 9 and 10, that's why we read them, we reread them today. Never should a Christian participate. Never should a Christian participate this way. Never should a Christian, a church member, paint this disunified picture of who Christ is in relation to his church. Now there's grace for all this. Moses granted certificates of divorce because of people's hard hearts. There's grace. It's, it's not like you're, 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 you're wounded immorally. You're never going to recover because you have a sexual past. No. But grace requires repentance of sin. Which means you have to acknowledge your sexual past and say, I know now that's not what the Bible says I should be doing. And so, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm going to get the accountability horizontally to help me rightly understand your word and live in line of your gospel. And I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm going to repent and experience your grace. That's why these conversations are so important. The principle of mastery, your, your body, you know it. If you are enslaved, if you're mastered by internet pornography, you know it. Don't go it alone anymore. You're not alone. You think you are. Ask for biblical counseling. We will help you. I give you my word. We will help you privately. We'll help you with it. But don't hide. It, it's a, the principle not just of, of mastery, but of eternity. View your body in light of the glorified body. Don't disconnect your inner part from your outer part. You are a body. So what you do matters eternally. It's a principle of unity. You're united with Christ, and the only way to rightly reflect that union with Christ is your right covenant union with your marriage spouse. That's why Malachi says, cling to the wife of your youth. Don't break faith with her. Hold fast to her. And like unto it, Deuteronomy 10.20 says that we are to hold fast to the Lord. Same word in the Septuagint used in Genesis 2.24. He's to hold fast to his wife. There's something particularly vile about the attack of the enemy to break apart the nuclear family, to break apart marriages, and sometimes break them apart before they're ever formed. Friends, I'm not standing up here to browbeat you about where you've gone wrong. I'm just asking you to let Jesus make you right. That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. I know we live in a world gone mad. I know we do. And I know we're deeply affected by the world gone mad. And you are drowning in a sea of hopelessness. Don't let this sermon be an installment on that hopelessness. Jesus Christ gives you resources to overcome sin. You don't need to be lost in that. And such some of you were. 
They had Corinthian church members that had testimonies, and they started to tell those testimonies in maturity to one another, and the church was lifted up, and the power of the gospel was experienced, not just in word, but in deed. Paul had to come with a rod in order for it to happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21 says, but it happened, praise God, the power of the gospel on display because they didn't just hush up about things that the devil wanted them to hush up about anymore. They talked about things that Jesus makes clear through his word we're supposed to talk about and not in a sloppy, jocular way. Like the jock gets up and gives 40 minutes to his sexual past and five minutes to, oh, Jesus saved me. Well, there's a lot of gears to shift through there, bud. Let's have some maturity about this, like the text does. Let the text drive how we present our testimonies. The fourth principle, I've talked about mastery, eternity, unity. The fourth, fourth principle is ownership. And it gets us into the imperatives of application. So let's, let's look at verses, uh, I believe it's, it's actually 18, 19, and 20. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Your translation might say uh, uh, run or... It might say, uh, I think shun might be a word, shun fornication. Some of them says they all get at the range of meaning. It's, it's a flee porneia, run away from pornography. And then it says, every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Actually, it could say every sin a person commits is outside his body. So other is in dispute there because it could slightly tweak the way that you apply the principle of ownership. But nevertheless, the principle of ownership is there. Every sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He may again be pulling from a, a slogan or a maxim of the Corinthian people. You know, kind of like we got our maxims. If it feels good, do it. Uh, you know, I, you know what, whatever your maxim is. Uh, this is just who I am. I can't help it. And it says here that every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The second time that's been said here, it was said in chapter 3, verse 16, talking about the church corporate. Now it's talking to you as an individual. Do you not know individually that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit or that, that God is in you, that this unity is here? And then he, he plays off of that and he says, whom you have from God, God gave it to you. What do you have that you have not received? He gave you his indwelling spirit. Therefore, you are not your own. You don't own yourself. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This fourth principle of ownership is so lost on us. Just like we won't talk about sex, we won't talk about slavery. Because slavery is obviously a horrible thing. 1 Corinthians 7 says that no man should choose to be enslaved. We'll see this when we get into chapter 7. That if you can get your freedom, you should get it. But there are obviously countries in the world where slavery still exists. And so there are principles in the Bible to help, I think, navigate your way out of that. I think help societies get to more free societies. But friends, never lose the construct of slavery because it's been redeemed in one very important way. And that is this. Jesus went to the market. He went to the agora, as the Greeks would say, and he bought your salvation. So you are his glorious, redeemed freed slave. He owns your body. You were bought at the price of his shed blood. He bought you. And so this fourth and final principle of ownership may be the most profound. Certainly you don't need to be mastered. Certainly 
it is true that eternity is in mind with our glorified body. Certainly it's true the unity in our marriages is so important and we should live from this day forward with unity in our marriage. Regardless of our past, we should say, say true to our marriage vows as best as we can so long as we both shall live. This one here, this fourth one is, is profound. The principle of ownership. What gives you hope when we talk about this? If you really want to walk with Jesus, what gives you hope is that he made you his slave so that you don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. He gave you his spirit. He went to the marketplace of ideas and people, and he paid the price for your cold, dead heart. While you were yet still a sinner, Christ died for you. He purchased you with the price of his blood. He ransomed you. He's bought you back. That's what it's saying here in verse 20. You were bought with a price. And so what are the two imperatives? What are the two prescriptions for the sexual immorality that the Corinthian Christians have thought to be the way? What's the prescription after they've not been deceived anymore and they've reconstructed their thinking and these slogans have been thoroughly repudiated? What's the two imperatives for them? One of them is a negative and one of them is a positive. Flee, glorify. Flee, glorify. And that's our application today. It's straight out of the text. Flee, or run from sexual immorality. Don't just be passive about it. Today, your action step, you need to run from sexual immorality. You identify the porneia in your life, and you run away from it. Most scholars think this is in line with Genesis 39, where Joseph runs from Potiphar's wife. It's the same construction of words in the Septuagint. Flee, run from Potiphar's wife. Run from whatever porneia, you're going to have to make a concerted, active effort to get away from it. Because if you just sort of stay around it, you're not going to be able to fight it. Flee, run away from it, or possible bring other believers in and helping you run and getting away from that and do it maturely. Get away from whatever pornea ails you. You know what it is. If you let this sermon pass you by and this month pass you by without repenting of that, fleeing from it, then you have done yourself and the body of Christ united a great disservice. Because you are worth being healed from this. Don't live enslaved to sin. When you're master, you're enslaved to your Savior. Don't do that. So run. The negative component is run. And what, as you run, not just passively waiting, but getting away from it, taking an active step today to pursue biblical counseling, to ask for it, can write on your tear off. I've got pornea. I need biblical counseling. Or if you don't even want to put that, just put, help me understand biblical counseling. I don't know exactly what you mean. We'll go from there. I mean, we, we can help. This is part of what God's doing here, but you've got, to, you've got to take that first step of fleeing, of running from pornea. You have to stop hiding and come out of it. Uh, and the second thing is glorify God. It's more, it's more um, positive and not so much negative. It's not running from something, it's running to something. When we come together every Sunday, we're glorifying God. So come to church every Sunday. Glorify His name. This vertical component, this imperative to glorify. Glorify Him individually in your day-to-day life. Read the Bible, pray, lead your family in prayers and Bible study if that applies to you. But glorify God with your body. Whatever you do with your body, in your body, glorify God. So don't, don't unite yourself with someone that's not your spouse. Don't redefine marriage. Don't break down nuclear families. Don't have digital addictions and digital girlfriends or boyfriends. Don't watch things that are easy on the eyes and hard on the heart. Eyes a window into the soul. Flee from it. Get away from it. Friends, some of you just need to get rid of your cable subscription or your Hulu or whatever. You just need to get rid of it. You need to run as far and as fast as you can from it. Just get rid of it. 
I'm not promoting asceticism. Some of you can handle it and you don't watch certain things. But if you find your, your little eyes seeing, then get away from it. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. And surely don't show that in front of your kids. Run from it and then be here. Take the TV time for the, from the smut. Get rid of it. Run from it and run here. Make it a point to be here with God's people. These principles for worship with your body will help you escape sexual immorality and cling to sexual morality or sexual intimacy as God defines it between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Or he will show you that you in fact are called to singleness for a season and for a lifetime and you'll glorify God in your singleness like Jesus and Paul did. It's not a weaker position to be in, folks. It's just this text talks about appropriate sexual expression. So I have to talk a little bit about marriage today. And next week it gets more into the marriage union. So we didn't, uh, we didn't do a whole lot with that today. But flee and glorify are your um, applications. I'll close with this. I told you I wanted to mention something from this book, uh, Sex and Money. And uh, this, is, this is part of what he says in the foreword. And I think, it's, I think it's so helpful. It begins on page 12. He says, um, this is Paul David Tripp, biblical counselor, pastor. He says, sorry, but we've gone crazy. He said, she's 13 and the thing can't stop. And she can't stop thinking and talking about her impending bodily development for her being a woman is all about how she's developing. She's 15 and she's quite the self-appointed expert when it comes to relationships with young men. She just doesn't see herself as knowledgeable, but as a bit of an expert. I've told my wife that recently during the summer months, it's hard to walk down the street because where we live, it's hard to know where to put your eyes because there's so many women in various stages of undress. Tim is 17, and in ways he doesn't recognize, he's already been trained to view women as objects whose value is attached to physical beauty and body shape. They came to me after a conference. By the way, we're going to a, a trip conference. It's his brother Ted, November the 9th and 10th, and you should sign up for it and go. It's a parent conference, but they're wonderful biblical counselors, him and his brother. Paul writes this. They came to me after a conference carrying with them a combination of brokenheartedness and anger. They wanted to know what to do about their son who seemed hopelessly addicted to internet pornography. I asked how old he was, thinking I would hear, that I would hear he was in his teens or his early 20s to my shock. And speaking through his shame, the father said to me with a quibbling voice, Eight. Eight. Let that sink in. Eight. At a conference in South Africa, they asked me if they could have lunch with me after the meal. They told me their story. Their son, a newly married intern pastor, had been having relations with a college girl from the student ministry over which he was responsible. In the big cities around the world and in the small cities, I might add, you're considered a hopelessly old-fashioned bigot if you don't think same-sex marriage is not only a wonderful idea but also a civil right. You can barely watch a video, look at a car ad, or hear a popular song without having your morals assaulted. Sandra is 20, and her definition of cool, fashionable clothes is those that are designed to reveal her body. Her clothes tend to be tight, short, and often low-cut. Sandra is a Christian who in many ways takes her faith seriously. And don't connect the body to the soul. He asked to counsel with me because he knew he was in trouble. He was literally stalking women in the evenings after his seminary classes. He would hang around Starbucks and follow the most attractive women home, of course, never letting them know what he was doing. How many teachers, how many coaches have been arrested for having sex with the students they've been entrusted to their care? There's a popular website that connects people who wants to be unfaithful with others who are desirous of the same. There's an inner city high school who opens up a daycare next to a school building because so many of its female students have children. So many are texting sexually explicit pictures from their cell phones that the word sexting becomes part of the modern vocabulary. 
Internet pornography is the most powerful economic engine of the World Wide Web. I simply read to you from pages 12 through 15 of Paul David Tripp's introduction to his book, Sex and Money, which I recommend that you read. Is any of that untrue? And we look like the world, but we don't have to. I believe having mature conversations is what Jesus would have us to do with this text. May the Spirit guide you in what you think this text would have you to do, to be faithful to sexual intimacy rather than sexual immorality. I pray God's blessings on you, even as we commune together as broken people, needing Jesus' healing for our hearts, minds, and souls. Bow your heads with me as we pray. And those that are going to serve us this morning, communion, please come on to the front. Dear Heavenly Father, I commit to this text preached to you as so much more could be said than has been said. But what we have said, Lord, we hope is honoring to you and is in right relation to your text and is preparing our hearts not for defeat, but for hope in you, for communion with you. As we take this Lord's Supper together, help us to meditate on this text in such a way to find hope for our hearts, to find lifting of the heaviness to find repentance of our sins, and to find that you have in fact purchased us with the price of your shed blood on the cross, that we might see our bodies as one day resurrected and very much alive in you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.